Well, welcome. It's good to see y'all this morning. We are moving into the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll spend a couple more weeks in this sermon, uh, but we need to remember that this is one sermon that we've spent 11 weeks on it so far and 13 in total. Uh, Jesus delivered this to a specific crowd on the mountainside uh, there in Galilee. It's one sermon. Uh, but as we kind of approach the uh, home stretch, I'm reminded uh, of a sermon that I preached early in my ministry. It was about 34 years ago. I was a young, uh, single uh, pastor, brand new and very green. And I was invited to speak at a neighboring church there in North Carolina called Friendly Chapel Baptist Church. Now, uh, I'm not sure, looking back on it, who chose the topic for that Sunday morning, whether I chose it or the pastor of the church chose it. But that morning, I spoke on the topic of the wrath of God against sin and His coming judgment. Uh, it was not what you would call a feel-good message. <laughs> but you wouldn't know that because as I stood at the back door of the church, uh, greeting people afterwards, you would have thought that I had preached about kittens and rainbows. Because as people filed out of the church and shook my hand, they all told me the same thing. Pastor, I really enjoyed that sermon. And my thought was, that sermon? That one. The one on the wrath of God and the judgment of hell. Well, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> like... Were we listening to the same sermon? Were you in church? Did you have headphones on or something? Like, what is going on here? Guys, there's some churches, I mean, I mean, some sermons that aren't meant to be enjoyed. I know they were just being polite, but there are some sermons that are not meant to be enjoyed. In fact, they instead should cause us to tremble. And so as Jesus begins His wrap-up of His sermon... He wants more than a handshake and a polite word or an empty compliment. Like He doesn't want His listeners to kind of kick back and relax and begin to talk about the uniqueness of His message or the eloquence of His turn of phrase. They don't, he doesn't want them just to say, thank you, you know, Rabbi, really enjoyed what you had to say and then move on. And so he kind of confronts the audience with some final words in chapter 7 where basically he's saying, so what are you going to do about all this? All the stuff I've been teaching about the kingdom, all the stuff I've been talking about, about how we are to live differently than the world. We're supposed to have a deeper alien righteousness. What are you going to do with that? Because just listening to this sermon is not going to help you if you don't do anything with it. As I have said for years now, that revelation, like when God speaks, when He reveals something, revelation requires a response. God doesn't just give us information so that we can pack it away in a file somewhere so that we can say that we know more than the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Methodists. God doesn't want us to treat His Word that way. Revelation requires a response. We need to do something with what we've heard. Jesus knows that admiration without action is deadly. 
He knows that conviction without commitment can actually harden the heart. It is a dangerous place to be in church and hear a sermon, especially a good one, with no intention of putting it into practice. All that does is callous our heart. And so Jesus calls for a response. Like sitting idly by, remaining neutral is no longer an option. Sitting on the fence will not work. It's time to choose. It's time to get off the fence. You will receive no benefit from a sermon that you never put into practice. And so, if you would stand with me as I read the words of Jesus from this section of Scripture, Jesus tells those gathered on that mountainside to enter by the narrow gate For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Guys, here's the reality. Life is filled with choices. With forks in the road. Like within our culture, there are people who are actually immobilized by the amount of choices they have. Like they go to HEB to just get a jar, a thing of ketchup, a bottle of ketchup, and there's like 80 different ketchups staring back at them. And they don't know where to begin. And yet there's other people within our culture who love like... Having options, but never choosing. They like being searchers, but not finders. Like some important decisions, like some decisions are really important. Some are really easy. But there are no decisions that you will ever make that are more important than the one that Jesus poses for us here. Two gates. Two paths. Two destinations stand before us. Two trees, two different kinds of fruit, two different kinds of teachers. Like, what will you choose? Will you choose the narrow gate that leads to the hard path whose destination is life? Or will you choose the broad gate, the wide gate with the easy road that leads ultimately to destruction? Understand this, there are only two gates. There's no third option given by Jesus. In fact, in this passage, you get a sense of a real urgency in the command of Jesus. Like as He gets begins to wrap up this sermon, He gives a command to His audience. And here's the command. Enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't just say there are two gates. No, He tells you you need to enter one of them and He tells you which one you should enter. Enter by the narrow gate. There is so much riding on what you have to choose here. 
Because there are other options. I mean, there's a different gate with a different road leading to a different destination. And so make no mistake, what Jesus is doing here is this is a clear Gospel invitation from Jesus Himself. This is Jesus saying to the audience, you've heard enough. Like There's not going to be a part two to this sermon. Don't come back tomorrow and think that like you get to just keep bringing in information and bringing in information. You know enough. Get off the fence. Make a decision. This is a Gospel moment. And so He's telling those who have gathered to hear His manifesto of the Kingdom of Heaven that the time of neutrality has ended and the time of decision has arrived. Will it be the Kingdom of Man or the Kingdom of God? I love what Kent Hughes writes about this. He says that it is no accident that Jesus placed this text at the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He knew that at the end of the sermon, some would stand at the foot of the magisterial immensity of what He taught and praise it and laud it and yet never enter the kingdom. You hear that? Like they, would, they would take it in. They would drink it all in. Man, that was really good. Remember when He said that? Oh yeah, that was good. But remember when He did this? Oh man, that was so good. And they'll praise it and they'll laud it, but they will not enter in. That is why the opening line is a command. Enter through the narrow gate. It is not enough to listen to the preaching about the gate. You must enter through it. It's not enough to know that there is one God existing eternally in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not enough for you to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That He died on the cross for your sins and rose again three days later. You must make a decision about what you will do with Jesus and with His sacrifice. And so he describes one of the gates as wide and the other as narrow. Understand this, the narrow gate is actually a turnstile. You can only enter one at a time. You can't go in as a family. You can't go in as a crowd. It admits only one person. The decision is yours alone. You cannot get into the kingdom of heaven on the coattails of mom or dad or your husband or wife. You have to have a moment where you take Jesus seriously. You understand what He has done for you. Who He is. And you ask Him to be the Savior and the Lord of your life. There are only two gates. And Jesus is in fact the gate that leads to the path of life. In John 10.9, He says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through Me will be saved. You see, this is the Gospel. The Gospel tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That our sin has a high price. And that the wages of our sin is death. The payment for your sin one day will be paid in full with spiritual and eternal death. But God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would 
not perish, but would have everlasting life. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it, but that through Him the world might be saved. So he who believes in Him, Jesus, is not condemned. But the one who does not believe in Him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Guys, the Gospel comes down to a choice. A decision about Jesus Himself, about His sacrifice, and about His Lordship over our lives. The early church understood this so that when Peter stood before the very Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus and was told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, his response is, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. How can I stop speaking about Jesus? Like He's the hope of the world. He's the only way that sin can be forgiven. Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all men. There are only two gates. There is no third option. And guys, there are only two paths. Once again, there's no third option. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Like if you're on the path of destruction, you have to be thinking, man, this isn't bad at all. Like it's so easy. It's so enjoyable. There's so much elbow room. I can just move around. I can go to the left. I can go to the right. I can stay in the center. And it's all good. It's so uncomplicated. John Stott writes about this wide path and he says there is plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. No one will ever question your beliefs or criticize your behavior. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs. No boundaries of either thought or conduct. We need leave nothing behind, not even our sins or our self-righteousness or our pride. And the easy road is attractive. It's well-traveled. There's lots of people to walk down it with you. It's super popular. It's well-known. But in this story here, in this sermon, Jesus challenges His listeners to take the road less traveled. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Why can't it be easy? Like, Why can't it be comfortable? Like, It's not easy. It's not easy because it goes against the flow. It goes against the narrative of our culture. It goes against the way of this world. Like for me, I've always pictured the narrow way that Jesus talks about running right down the center of the broad path, but in the opposite direction so that you continually run into people and they're wondering, where are you going? Like, turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. As they go toward destruction, we are moving toward life going against the flow. The road is narrow. You can't bring anything with you. You can't bring luggage. You have to leave everything behind. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. This is a narrow road. It's a difficult road. It imposes boundaries on what we think, on what we believe, on how we behave. 
Because we don't get to pick and choose. Guys, this is the path of lordship. And you don't get to pick and choose with someone whom you call Lord. Like There's no room for me to set my opinion against His. Like He begins His ministry before this Sermon on the Mount. He's going village to village and He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like God is about to do something fresh and new, but you need to prepare your hearts for it or you will miss it all together. Like we look at the narrow path and think it's so restrictive, but Jesus says the narrow path is actually the one that leads to life. It's the one that leads to fullness, to flourishing. It's the one that leads to freedom. In fact, I think most of us in this room get that. Because what have you done with the freedoms you've had in your life? Like most of us would say that the worst decisions that we've ever made, the things we regret the most, are when we were pursuing what we thought was freedom, but ended up being slavery. Like we were doing things that everyone else was doing. We were doing things that offered like an immediate payback, really offered fun and satisfaction but only for a moment. Like sin is enjoyable for a season, but another season is coming. I love what one commentator explains. He says, I know everyone loves to pretend like Christianity is a faith of rigid rules, but the freedom that comes to a soul when it worships a constant, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is unmatched and unrivaled. God's expectations for human behavior and His guideposts for human flourishing will never shift or uproot. His love is eternal. His commands clear. And His promise of grace is unimaginable. Guys, there's something about worshiping a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever who has spoken and has not changed, who cannot lie, so that we are, if we follow Him in obedience today, we will be doing what Christians were doing 2,000 years ago. Because God's standard doesn't change with a pole taken and it's check which way the wind is blowing. Like His way is sure and solid. There are only two paths. And by the way, Jesus is the path. The one that leads to life. He says in John 14 to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. That is narrow. That is exclusive. Understand, it takes no effort, zero effort to remain on the wide path. And if you're on the wide path, you have a deceptive sense of like real freedom and independence. You enjoy the trip, but that's all you enjoy. Like the trip itself is all that it has to offer. The wide road comes to the edge, an end at the edge of an abyss. abyss. And there it stops. But those who are on that path don't stop. 
They go over the edge into eternity. So enjoy the journey because you're going to hate the destination. That's really what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this wide path, this easy path, this road that so many people are on, it's going to end someday in a destination and you're going to be weeping and there's going to be gnashing of teeth. Like change, turn while there is still time. Proverbs 16 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Like we need to evaluate what gate we have walked through, what path we are on, and the destination to which it leads because there are only two destinations. Once again, there is not a third option. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Understand, this is not the Word of Bobby. This is not my Word. This is Thy Word. It's not my opinion. It's the opinion of Christ. This isn't my teaching, some novel idea that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus Himself said this. Like the same Jesus who said, come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That same Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through Me. The same Jesus who said, allow the little children to come to Me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That same Jesus said that if you don't believe in Me and believe that I am who I am, you will die in your sins. So according to Jesus and on His authority, there are only two gates. Wide and narrow. There's not a third gate. There are only two ways. Hard and easy. There's not a middle way. And there are only two destinations. Destruction and life. There is no purgatory. No third place that you can prepare yourself for heaven while suffering for just a little while. Like you find in the Scripture not a hint of universalism. The idea that all will be saved in the end. Or people will be saved apart from the work of Jesus and they're receiving Him as the Savior and Lord of their life. There are only two gates, two paths, two destinations. And then there's only one choice that you need to make. To choose the narrow gate is to choose the path that leads ultimately to Jesus Himself. But understand this, not choosing is choosing. Like, y'all get that, right? Like, not choosing is choosing. Like, if you're after church wondering, oh, where are we going to eat? Like, are we going to eat here or are we just going to go home? But you can't decide where you're going to eat. You've decided you're going home. Right? And if you don't decide for Christ, you're deciding against Christ. And this is nothing new. This has always been the case. There's never a point in the Bible where people are saved because of their family or because of their ethnicity. There has always been a remnant in the Old Testament of true Israel. Those who had their faith in Yahweh. And the same is true today. It always comes down to a choice. Always comes down to faith. So that after the 
people of Israel are delivered from slavery in Egypt. They gather around a mountain with Moses. They receive the law. And then Moses gives them this challenge. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. What is Moses saying here? He's saying, okay, you're here. You're gathered. You've been rescued. But now you have a choice to make of whether you're going to be the people of God or not. You have a choice. You don't have to choose life. But you have to choose. And then after the nation of Israel is finally arriving in the land of uh, promise, the promised land, after they've taken the land, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua gathers the nation of Israel once again and he gives them a similar challenge. He gives them a history lesson where God speaks and says 18 different times in Joshua 24, I did this. You didn't do it. You didn't defeat these other kingdoms. You didn't defeat these other armies. You didn't cast down these false gods. You are living in cities that I gave to you. You didn't even build them. Drinking from vineyards that I handed you. You didn't even plant them. I did this. And so you have to choose whether you will serve God or not. And then famously, Joshua says in verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your, for your forefathers served beyond the river there in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in, the land who, in, in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now many of us have that written on a plaque in our house, right? Like just a shortened version of it. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like we have it on t-shirts, we have it on plaques, maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker, it hangs over people's doors as you're entering or exiting. But what's left out is this statement. Hey, if it seems undesirable to you, like you don't have to serve Yahweh. Like, if you don't want to serve Yahweh, that's okay. Just make a choice. Like, do you, would you rather go back to Egypt and serve the gods defeated by Yahweh? That's okay. Go for it. Or would you rather serve the gods that have been trampled under our feet in this land? You can do that too. Like, what he's saying here is you don't have to choose to follow the Lord, but you do have to choose. And then all of Israel with one voice in Joshua 24 speak back to Joshua, and they say, far be it from us to forsake Yahweh to serve false gods. We too will serve the Lord. And then Joshua, who is has to be the worst televangelist in the world, <laughs> says, no. No, you can't serve the Lord. Because He's holy. Because He's jealous. Because He won't put up with your unfaithfulness. Because He doesn't want some quick and shallow affirmation. Because He doesn't want your vote. He doesn't need your high five. You know, He doesn't need your vote for Him as Lord as if He's only missing one vote to put Him over the top. You're unable to serve the Lord because 
Serving God is not like choosing a color for a new car or a favorite flavor of ice cream. You can't serve the Lord because you can't serve two masters as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Because you will love one and hate the other. Or you'll be bound to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and fill in the blank anything else. You don't have to follow the Lord, Israel. But you do have to choose. And then later on, as Israel is in the land and they've split as a kingdom and rebelled to the point of being taken out of the land, Elijah stands on Mount Carmel taunting the priests of the false god Baal, gathering the nation to Himself, He shouts to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. So before the miracle happens, before they see the power of God, He gives them this choice. You don't have to follow Yahweh. But you do have to choose. And you can't stay in the middle. In Hebrews 2, we read these words. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Guys, there is one decision that all of us have to make. You don't have to follow the Lord, but you do have to choose. And there there may be some who will tell you it's a false choice. God's not that narrow. And so to those people, Jesus warns, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He warns against the path of destruction and then He warns against the teachers of destruction. Just like it matters what spiritual path you're on, it matters what spiritual leaders you listen to and which moral guides you follow. Pay close attention to how they treat the church. Pay close attention to what they are teaching. The false teacher in context here would never tell you that there is a narrow way. And for some, that's good news, right? Because they don't want to hear bad news. But what if you have cancer? And you have a doctor that you go to and he looks at all the information. He looks at the blood work. He looks at the MRI or the CAT scan or the x-ray. And it's all there right in front of him just glaring so obvious. But he doesn't want to hurt your feelings and he doesn't want to be a downer. And he likes to have a positive relationship with his patients. So he's like, it's all good. Like, do you appreciate that? As you walk away to your death? Guys, we have cancer. We have spiritual cancer. We have the scent of death on each of us. And we need someone like Jesus to tell us the truth. But the false teacher will just tell you what you want to hear. As Paul tells Timothy, a time is coming... When people won't put up with sound teaching, instead, they'll gather to themselves 
Teachers who tell them exactly what they want to hear, what their itching ears desire. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth. The false teacher will tell you that there are many paths going up the mountain. And they all end in the same destination. Which kind of makes sense to us. Like if we're all searching for God, and we're all building our different systems to go up the mountain, and if He's at the top of the mountain, well, it makes sense that all those roads end at the same place. But what if... Guys, what if we're not really searching for God? What if no one searches for God? But instead, God searches for us. What if the road doesn't begin on earth and end in heaven, but instead begins in heaven and ends on earth and was traveled by one man, the man Christ Jesus who came to redeem us? Wouldn't it make sense that there only be one? See, a false teacher would never tell you that Jesus is exclusive. He would say, admire Him, that He's awesome, that He's a great teacher, but certainly not the only Son of God. So let me just close with these wise words from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. And Lewis concludes, that is the one thing we must not say. The man, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about His being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Guys, you can know right now, like right now, where you will spend eternity. You can have absolute confidence right now, not based on My Word, but based on Thy Word. The Scripture tells us whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is one choice. You don't have to follow the Lord. But you do have to choose. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that every single week as we gather as a church, we're confronted with the message of the Gospel that shouts from this table a body broken for us and blood spilled for us. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who have yet to come to a point where they have surrendered their life to You, where they have confidence that if they were to die tonight, that they would be with You forever. Lord, I pray even now that in the quietness of their heart that they would do business with You. And so in the quietness of your heart, if you're here this morning and you don't know for sure 
that your sins are forgiven, that you have a Savior, take some time to tell that to God. You can tell Him in your own words, Lord, Father, I know that I'm a sinner. My sin is great. My sin has separated me from You. And one day, without forgiveness, it will separate me from You forever in the place that Jesus calls destruction. But I believe that Your Son on the cross took my sin. That He was punished in my place. That He experienced judgment that I deserved. That He died for my sin and rose again. And so I ask You right now, Father, let His death count for me. Let His sacrifice count for me. Let His atonement be for my sin. So Father, would You save me? Would You forgive me of all my sin? Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Wash me and make me new. And Lord Jesus, would You take over my life? I repent of my sin and ask You to save me and be the ruler and Lord of my life. Lord, bless this table now. May it be for us true nourishment as we remember the cross and the sacrifice of Your Son. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.